0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. It is Maddie and Ethan here with another episode of the Vine to Mind podcast.
1: Now on this episode of the show, Maddie and I are going to be talking about the pink stuff. That's right. We are doing all things rosé. We hope you enjoy Maddie, what's up? How are we doing, Ethan? I am good. It's been a while.
0: Like what, 20 minutes? Like 20 minutes. The <laughs> last time
1: I saw you, which was two days ago, you sabered a bottle of bubbles mm. for a video we were shooting and uh, it went pretty well. But I think this is a topic, especially during like the holiday season, and folks, right now we're in the midst of December, so this episode might be released later down the road, but just put in the reference here, we're in the middle of December, we're still in the holiday season people love to celebrate with bubbles and i think a lot of people don't really know how to correctly open a bottle of bubbles Mm. or do it at least safely and a lot of people see these videos online of people sabering them and they think oh it's easy to do that and you and i get a lot of common questions about like oh how sharp should the knife be doesn't have to be sharp at all no i mean we've done it with like butter knives
0: yeah i mean you can use it with a spoon it doesn't really matter if it's a knife or not
1: So what would be like three things that you should know about savoring a bottle before you go out and savor it?
0: Well, first off, yes, Christmas is like next week, right? Mm -hmm. You best believe I will be savoring multiple bottles of sparkling wine. Absolutely. But I also want to let you know that it doesn't have to be Christmas to savor a bottle. It doesn't have to be New Year's or Valentine's Day. You can savor a bottle on 2 p.m. on a Tuesday. It doesn't really matter. So first things first, you can do this whenever. But I have savored a lot of bottles and there's two times i can think of where it was a it was a fail yeah. i was fine i didn't get cut or anything but the bottle was not cold enough the bottle has to be cold ice be cold freezing cold very chilled the one time we were taking pictures of it outside it was some marketing shindig mm-hmm. and then we thought it was cold enough to try to savor and we actually got the video in slow-mo it's a pretty cool video it's a Pretty awesome video. but uh the entire bottle just exploded in my hand essentially
1: so a good way to you know, cool it down. I mean, obviously, you should have the bottle in the fridge regardless already. Mm-hmm. But I always recommend, like, put it in the freezer for, like, a half an hour before that. Or put, submerge it in an ice bath. because Absolutely. yes Upside the, down, too. Exactly. Because you want the entire thing to be cold. But you really, especially the most important part is you want the neck to be cold. Yeah, yeah. You want it to be freezing cold. So even throw some salt in an ice bath. Have it chill down the temperature a little bit more.
0: Be careful in the freezer, too. You don't, I, I always get nervous Just about freezing things ice. with bubbles in it because... Mm-hmm. I've done it with beer before. They got to get it cold. And you just, after a beer or two in, you just forget about it. So, you um, drink beer? Occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) If it's ice cold. Um, But yes, okay. So, chill it. And then, second, you want to take all the foil off the top of the bottle. Mm -hmm. You do not want to leave any of that on there. What about the mousselet? The cage? Yeah. Leave that on there for the time being. Anytime you open up any bottle of sparkling wine, you leave that on there until the very last second. Guys, it's happened to me before, too. Also probably happened to me because I do drink a lot of sparkling wine. Mm-hmm. So I've had experience with this. But you have to be careful with the cage on the top. Because the second you undo that and you take that off, that cork, there's nothing holding that cork in there. And if it flies off, there is so much pressure built up in this bottle that it can... I mean, if it hits somebody in the wrong spot, I mean, it, people have actually died from opening a bottle of sparkling wine. It's supposed to be fun, guys. We do not want to worry about that. So just leave that cage on there. But... When you're getting ready for this, make sure you take all the foil off, clean the bottle off. You don't want any of that, you know, sticky residue.
1: Especially clean it off by the seams of the bottle, too. Because mm-hmm. that's the where seam you're going to sliding your saber, whatever you use, along the seam. You want to make sure it has a pretty smooth path to the neck of the bottle. Um, yeah, Maddie, when I was, you know, first getting into working, I was 15 years old. And I was uh, working in a restaurant back home on the East Coast. And they asked me to help them, like, prep some bubbles for Sunday brunch. Now I'm 15 years old, so I can't open the bottles, but I can prep them. And I accidentally, I was trying to take the mousselet off, and the cork came off, and I was aiming it, like, at (gasps) my face. Oh, gosh. I didn't know. Nobody warned me. And luckily, I aimed it a little bit higher up, and it hit me in, like, my forehead. (laughs) Didn't really do anything that bad.
0: This is the first I've heard of this. It bounced off my forehead.
1: And we had wine glasses that hung above us. That's where we would hang them. And... It hit the wine glasses, and I'm, I'm not kidding you, Maddie. At least two racks of wine glasses fell down, hit the bar glasses, which then also fell down. It was a huge scene. Luckily, the restaurant wasn't open yet, but everybody, <laughs> I was a laughing stock for quite a while. So be careful, and please, folks, for the love of God, do not hold the bottle near you or anybody whatsoever or anything that is valuable to you because if that cork comes flying out, it could break something, oh. especially it could break a person.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, you want to be very careful. So keep that cage on there for <laughs> exactly. the time being. <laughs> that's actually that's a crazy story. Um, yeah, so that's important. Also, we always say wear some glasses. If you don't have regular glasses, put some sunglasses on. You can wear goggles if you want. Those don't look quite as slick. Um, you're wanting to do this outside too. Do not saber inside. First things first. That should be obvious, but you never know. Um, and so you want that, and then you need to find your saber. And chances are you probably don't have a saber lying around the
1: house. So what if I just have my knife?
0: Absolutely. You can use a chef's knife. But what I do is I use the backside.
1: Because it doesn't have to be sharp.
0: And honestly, no, because I could definitely harm the actual blade itself. It could dull that. It could chip at it. So use the backside.
1: And you should hold the bottle at an angle, correct?
0: Correct. You want to hold it out in front of you and have it at an angle. And you want to, like I said, be outside and have plenty of space. You don't want anybody walking down there or whatnot because you don't have a ton of control of where the top is going to fly.
1: I would say, and I'm no like absolute professional expert in this, but between the 30 to 45 degree angle. Yeah. So you should hold it. Don't like hold that. it horizontally. It actually, when you hold it at an angle, and the same thing goes when like, you're opening a bottle of champagne for like proper service in like a restaurant setting. You hold it at an angle because it helps reduce the pressure as Mm -hmm. well when you're opening the bottle so same thing goes when you're sabering it
0: yeah i mean you don't want to hold it horizontal because you don't want to lose all your bubbles you still want to drink them exactly and then also you don't want to do it straight in the air because then shoot that's gonna fall back on top of you (laughs) so the ankle makes sense and then it's
1: all about just the the rhythm of how you do it right
0: well i think at this point when you're outside you got the glasses on you got your saber in your hand you got the bottle cleaned off the foil's gone you have the seam of the bottle, you can see a little line. That's the mm-hmm. that's the weakest part of the bottle. Mm-hmm. That is pointing up. That is what you're gonna slide your saber against. Now it's okay to take the cage off. And it's time to saber the bottle of wine. So we've got it all lined up. you're holding it the right way, you get your saber in your right hand if you're right-handed, left hand if you're left-handed. And it's time to slowly glide that up the seam. So typically I like to do a one, two, three three so just Mm -hmm. the one I'm just slightly gliding it on the bottle Mm -hmm. two doing the same thing and three you want to use a little bit more speed you don't need a lot of pressure though yeah just speed and you're not trying to go like hack at it you're just gliding it right along the seam of the bottle and you're using a little bit more speed right up into the lip of the bottle and by that little pop that little speed it should be enough pressure just to have the top of the glass and the cork and everything just to fly off
1: you know, it's funny when we have people do it for the first time because they think you have to, like, swing as hard as you can. Mm-hmm. No, it's actually so effortless when you do it. And a lot of people have the same reaction, like, wow, it came off so easy. Because remember, there's so much pressure inside this bottle. It's like two times the amount of pressure as, like, a tire on your car. So, like, it's doing most of the work for you as long as you're just, like, nice, you know, smooth glide into the bottom of the lip, and you should be dandy.
0: You should be good to go. And one thing, too— it's normal for some of the bubbles to kind of overflow too sometimes Mm -hmm. it may may not be a perfect uh, cut reduce the temptation to just put it to your mouth and take a swig out of it a lot of times you're like i don't want any of this to go to waste and that's the first thing you want to do is like let me have a sip you just cut glass that's sharp the last (laughs) thing you want to do is end a gorgeous savoring with a bloody face now
1: you don't want that at (laughs) all you're absolutely right maddie I'm pretty embarrassed to admit this, but I, when I watch like celebrations in sports, like when it's like football, or when my Washington nationals won the world series and seeing them like celebrate by opening bottles of bubbly in like a clubhouse, I like, although I'm like really happy about the celebration and I feel good for these people because they worked so hard to accomplish this. It's weird. I think I'm too much of a geek. I actually worry about it, that they're shaking this bottle up. A lot of times, luckily the cork is already taken out, but like what if a cork wasn't taken out? Like They're shooting basically a weapon at their teammates. Don't get hurt.
0: They're not that's the last
1: thing they're thinking about. They just won
0: the World Series. (laughs) They get paid. (laughs) They want to spray some bubbles. (laughs) But yes, do not shake the bottle. Okay, Ethan, that was fun. Uh, I'm excited to savor some bottles this next week, but I think we better get back into what we're talking about today, and that is Rose.
1: I think we just saved some lives though by going through that.
0: I think so. And you guys, (laughs) if you savor a bottle, let us know. Send us a video. We want to see it. Yeah.
1: So pink stuff, the pink stuff, the pink juice. It's yeah. got a cool history, doesn't it? doesn't it?
0: It's got a really cool history. And, you know, it's only within the past 10, 15, 20 years that we've really seen rosé just surge in the market. Mm-hmm. Before that, everyone just thought it was, you know, your cheaper, sweeter pink wine. But in reality, just about the first traces of winemaking ever to exist, mm-hmm. a lot of them were actually rosés, which is pretty interesting. Most people don't realize that. And there was two reason for reasons for this. The first was back in the day, a lot of times they'd make red wine and they'd dilute it. Um, you know, story has it that you wouldn't want all these drunk soldiers out and about. So they used to water it down a little bit uh, just to ensure that see, people weren't a little reckless out there. Um, but also, a lot of times when they're making wine too, they wouldn't leave the skins in there very long. So mm-hmm. it's going to be lighter in color either way. So whether you dilute it or you don't have a long maceration, you get this, you know, pretty pinkish style of wine.
1: And Maddie, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a legend about a Spartan king who actually drove himself into insanity because he drank undiluted wine. So he wasn't drinking the rosés and it made him go crazy.
0: Yeah, exactly. They used to say that only barbarians drink pure wine everyone else had the diluted wine so
1: i guess i'm a barbarian now
0: <laughs> right yes well we've come a long <laughs> way um so it's i mean it's very interesting to see like the origins of winemaking and how rosé was it's really always been there but you cannot talk about rosé without talking about southern france mm-hmm. Right. this is kind of like the birthplace of a lot of winemaking but specifically rosé winemaking and they date this back to about 6 BC. Wow. And that's when a lot of these grapes you know like your Grenache, your Syrah, your Carignan, on your Rouvette a lot mm-hmm. of these grapes were being brought to southern France and they realized a lot of these make beautiful styles of rosé like a lot of them have a little bit of thinner skins as well and you get this beautiful color in the wine.
1: And you're referring to a place that I would love to live one day Provence.
0: Oh. Absolutely. Of course. Who would not? You know, get all these beautiful vineyards and lavender fields. You're on the
1: Mediterranean Sea. Exactly. You get any better than that?
0: Exactly. And so this area of France is starting to really produce some beautiful rosés and really making a name for themselves with their rosé production. And then it was thanks to the Romans to spread their techniques all throughout the Mediterranean and throughout Europe. I mean, the Romans, you have to credit them a lot with spreading winemaking, all throughout Europe during their their rule, yeah. specifically the rosé, though. And so that started spreading around the area. And rosé was, I mean, it was there. But then later on down the road, you would start to see the bigger, the bolder style of red wines that would start to take the lead. Of course. And then you'd have your white wines. And then it just kind of split for whatever reason, mm-hmm. at, least, at least in the United States. Whenever we started our wine industry here in the New World, in the 1800s, early 1900s, Rosé was never huge.
1: You don't hear a lot about rosé. No, at you all. don't. Yeah, and I. it seems like for a while, I mean, back in the day, I mean, it was a well-respected style of wine, and at some point, it just kind of lost its respect, its, you know, its sophistication. Mm-hmm. For some reason, it had the stigma of being, like, s- cheap and sweet, and a lot of that has to really do for, like, after World War II, I mean.
0: Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Wines like Matus, uh uh-huh. uh-huh. And it was great to get people into drinking wine. Absolutely. Because it's a little bit sweeter, but it was just associated with like a cheap stigma, I think with that. Um, but that still wasn't, I mean, here in the U S it still wasn't like people still weren't drinking the pink stuff really. They weren't, but that changed in the 1970s. White Zinfandel. White Zinfandel.
1: Yeah. So Bob Trincareau made a little mistake uh, when he was making his Zinfandel, his reserve Zinfandel from Amador County. For Sutter Home. For Sutter Home, of course. And he was doing the Sonye method. Whether he was doing it purposely or it kind of just made sense that you draw juice away to increase the strength and the character of your Zinfandel. And that runoff juice ended up being that dark pink sweet stuff that we know as white Zinfandel. And
0: it was pure accident.
1: Oh, it really was. And, you know, he wasn't a fan of sweet wines. He wanted Sutter Home to be known for some big, bold, classy Cabernet Sauvignon style of Zinfandel. But, you know, they needed some source of making money. And back in the day, think about what people were drinking. A lot of times, like, the triple cream sherries and the fortified wines were still popular. Why? Mm -hmm. Because we have a sweet tooth in the United States. You know, and, you know, the UK, they have a pretty sweet tooth as well. But we wanted to drink these, like, high-end, dry, tannic, stinky red wines that you see the French drinking. But you can't start off with those wines. I mean, my dad did, but I didn't. You have to start off with something that's a little bit more inviting. And that's what the white Zinfandel did to Americans, to the American culture, and introduced more people into wine. It was actually credited in 1994. Baudrillard was credited with that.
0: Yeah, but I went spectator, I think.
1: It was. So now we have this dark pink rosé.
0: Yeah, and slightly sweet too. Exactly. And so I think that that definitely altered people's perception in the United States about what rose is too, mm-hmm. um, because I thought it always had to be sweet. And there definitely is a it's a great place for whites and pendel, But it also, I mean, there is an entire another category of rose that is dry, beautiful, mm-hmm. acidic, crisp, refreshing rose wines. And you know these really weren't that popular in the '70s and the '80s. They weren't. But in the '90s. In the late 90s, there is this man who we need to talk about because he was kind of ahead of the times and he was trying to promote Rosé production Uh. and he did a fantastic job. He actually he bought an old uh, Cadillac. Is that right, Ethan?
1: Old pink Cadillac. Yes.
0: To drive around the country to tell people that Rosé is cool. And this man, of course, is Charles Bieler.
1: He was wearing a pink suit too, wasn't he?
0: Uh, that's what I believe. <laughs> yes, he is a character. His father actually um, had a winery in southern France, mm-hmm. and has they've been making wine there for many, many years. And so Charles Buehler grew up with that, yeah. and they're producing rosé. And they realized a lot of people in the U.S. aren't drinking rosé; they don't yeah. think it's cool. But Charles decided to change that stigma, and he was really ahead of his time.
1: Yeah, the Buehler Pelleties, the Aix-en-Provence rosé, Maddie. It's one of my favorite rosés on the market.
0: It's it's delicious, it's especially for the wonderful. price. You really oh. cannot beat it. The color is beautiful. You get mm. that you know that you know quintessential you know aromas like the strawberry, the watermelon, then this nice like kind of like almost herbs de Provence character.
1: If you go back real quick to, you know, the era of white Zinfandel and of course the era of like the Matus and the Lancer rosés that were sweeter, they did a lot more good than people really think. A lot of people kind of associate them when doing bad, but really. One, they introduced people into drinking wine, especially the White Zinfandel. But also think about it. People forgot that there are high-end, dry styles of rosés. Mm-hmm. So when they started coming back on the market in the late 90s, thanks to Charles Bieler and into the 2000s, and of course recently, people are now thinking, is this new? Is this dry, pink, acidic stuff? Is this new? Because yeah. people forgot about it for a while. So I think that's one reason why it's hot. But it's to me, what makes rosé so great is sort of the best of both worlds. It drinks like a white wine, but it smells and kind of tastes like a red wine.
0: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's the best of both worlds. And people Uh have finally recognized that. Absolutely. And I've got a fun statistic for you. Okay, let's do it. Since 1990, rosé consumption in France and the U.S. has nearly tripled. Wow. Isn't that crazy?
1: That's remarkable.
0: I know, because people want to drink the rosé now. They realize that it's delicious and it looks pretty in the glass. And rosé all day... It can be a thing,
1: right? Well, especially during like the social media like oh, for sure. era that we're in, you know, people posting pictures and it's like a fun, it's trendy, the pink stuff, um, the fat Jew. I mean, a lot of celebrities are <laughs> involved with rose production, right? There's what Marival that's produced by Angelina, Angelina Jolie. Jolie
0: and Brad Pitt. Uh-huh. Come on, they've got a champagne now too, which is kinda
1: crazy. Andrew Barrymore, she has a rose too. Yeah, her. Barrymore rose. I'll have to try that. I haven't tried that one.
0: No, I haven't either. Um, but yeah, the celebrities are getting involved with it. Um, I know restaurants, resorts, beach destinations, they've really stocked up on Rosé. I mean, that's a great poolside um, sipper per se. Um, so you're just seeing it just surge. And even still to this day, um, if it was its own like variety, like a great variety or whatnot, mm-hmm. it is the ninth most popular right now. And it's growing tremendously. It's the fastest growing segment on the market.
1: You know, it's funny you mention that grape varieties. I think we could lead into our next segment is how they're made because they're so unique. You Mm -hmm. know, because they do have character and the way they're made, and the grapes that go into making them, whether it's 100% one variety or it's a blend, they're all different.
0: Yeah, exactly. So let's talk. I guess like let's talk about production. Of course. So there's essentially two ways to make Mm rosé, and first and foremost, it come the color comes from the skins, right? Yeah, because. Red grapes, except for a very few exceptions, red grapes have white juice, or clear mm-hmm. juice. Um, it's like you go to the store, you buy you know, a thing of grapes, you squeeze them, that juice is clear. It's the skins so that are gonna be the color in the wine. And so you can either get that color through a, a little bit of a slight maceration, yeah. so some skin contact, or blending some red wine with white wine.
1: And of course, the blending, that's really popular in Champagne.
0: Correct, Beside, like, outside of Champagne, not so much. You don't
1: see a lot of blending, no. Mm-mm. So, essentially, rosé production is like a condensed version of red wine making, in yep. a way. Because yep. there is skin contact, but very minor skin contact, to create that color. And the two methods, of course, you have that, that short maceration, which is that direct press. The other real popular one is going to be the saunier, which, of course, saunier means to bleed in French. That one typically creates a wine that's a little bit darker in color because it's seeing more contact with the skin typically saunier occurs when you're making want to make it a, a bigger style of red wine and that's just the byproduct hence mm-hmm. how the white zinfandel was created but now because rosé has become so so popular there's been a bunch of wineries in just this area alone that i've i've been to and toured and they're saying like oh you know they either sell their saunier juice like they bottle it and call it something or they just have that Saunier juice and they'll use it for like a wedding, or they'll just have it as like their house wine or something like that. But they know they can use it, they ferment it dry. But typically, I mean, being out here in Napa, I've seen them being a little bit sweeter when they're Saunier. Now, that's not, that doesn't go for all of them.
0: So I think, yeah, exactly. and exactly. the big reason why that is the case is because when you're growing grapes to produce, a rosé, you're mm-hmm. going to grow them in a different manner than you would a red wine. Absolutely. Typically, you want to treat them almost as if it's a white wine because you want that crisp acidity, that refreshing characteristic, that like tart fruit. Whereas if you're growing a red wine, you want those grapes to attain a higher sugar levels. You want them to reach a higher phenolic ripeness. Mm-hmm. That you, a lot, The grapes are going to stay on the vines typically longer. So like you were saying, here in Napa Valley, a lot of people use the Sonier method when they're making Cabernet Sauvignon. Of course. And that will give you a higher ratio of skins to juice in the tank to make a bigger, or bolder version of Cabernet Sauvignon. But you have that juice. So sometimes I've had plenty of Napa Cab Rosés. And like you said, they're they're dark, darker in color and they're Much juicy, mm-hmm. maybe slightly sweet. Yeah. Um. I mean, they can be they can be tasty, you know. It's one of those things that people sometimes call like the the porch pounder almost. Like of course. <laughs> it goes down kind of easy it um, because it has that slight sweetness. Uh-huh. So typically, saignes they're going to be bolder, like you said, because the grapes are grown in a different manner. Whereas direct press, typically, you're going to harvest those grapes to make rosé.
1: Absolutely, and direct press. I mean, that kind of goes hand in hand with you're also going to grow the grapes in a way that you're intending to make rosé, like you mentioned, too. So they gonna be lighter in color. Sometimes they can have a little bit of a salmon hue, also depending on the grape, but they're, I would say they're prettier. They're more of that light pink color that people typically associate with rosé. And it's kind of interesting just looking at the spectrum of different rosés, even just going to your local market or wine shop and seeing all of them on the shelves. Yeah. It's like a rainbow of it a pink and orange. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty remarkable.
0: And you get this almost like crossover between some like darker rosés, and light red wines too. It's it, there's this kind of this weird cross. If you get some like almost like a Beaujolais, which is like very light, mm-hmm. and you get some darker rosés, and then it's kind of like there's come almost kind of like a, a continuous stream or rainbow between whites and reds now because of the the bigger growing category of a rosé. Because I mean, direct press, you yeah. can have the grape skins can be in contact with the juice for as little as like an hour. Like it can be very, very pale, but then it can be up to 24 hours or so if you have a saunier.
1: Absolutely. So let's get into grapes because I think this is interesting. Um, Obviously, you know, it's fun that rosé is sort of that like rebellious category of wine because there's not a lot of standards and rules, but there are some commonalities that we see from it. And especially like out here in the new world, I do see a lot of Pinot Noir rosé. I love them. I do as well.
0: One of my favorite producers, Bravium. Oh, my gosh. The one from
1: Anderson Valley. Oh, it's Single so good. vineyard, too. Mm-hmm. But then you go, of course, to the Old World while you're in Champagne. And it's funny because, as we said, for a while, rosés weren't as well-respected as they should be. But you go to any restaurant that has a rosé champagne on their list, you go to any wine shop that has it, they're typically more expensive than just the Blanc de Blanc or the Blanc de Noir. Mm-hmm. They are.
0: Yeah, and typically if— so if you are making a rosé and champagne, mm-hmm. like we said, in most of the European Union, you cannot blend red wine and white wine to make rosé. But in champagne, you can. Absolutely. They're not typically going to blend a whole lot. Then you don't, And especially if you have a red wine, you don't need to blend a whole lot to attain that pretty pink color. Normally, just like 5% or so is what they stick to.
1: You're allowed to go up 20%. Right. But you don't see a lot of that. No, no, no. And then you go, of course, to... Hopefully, where I retire one day <laughs> to the southern France to you're Provence, never leaving these. us here in Napa. Even. I'm not. I'm sorry, but like the southern Rhone Valley and like Tavel, and then you go down to Provence. A lot of times, they're blends, and a lot of the blends are based off Grenache. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, those beautiful salmon-colored rosés. Mm-hmm. um Yeah, and then you can't forget about Bandol.
1: Oh, Bandol, Mou- and they're. Which is fun because Mouvet, it's got more color to it. Yeah. And typically, they're a little bit darker. Not as dark as like like the White Zins and those blush style of wines, but they're so uniquely different from other rosés. They got this like spiciness, but they got that fresh cherry and strawberry and they're floral. They're mouthwatering acidic, and that's why I love drinking them on a hot summer day, especially on our bocce nights. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. What's not the hit. love about that? Yeah, nothing. Exactly. So, yeah, no, absolutely. With the Southern France, too, I'm, we must say that, This region, especially Provence, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what they focus on is rosé. I think it's like over 80% of their production, their wine production is dedicated Mm -hmm. to rosé. They definitely make up a large market share as well. And it's funny to see some of the bottles too. You've seen a lot of these producers come out with these fancy old bottles, uh, which can look kind of cool. But honestly, some of my favorites are just the simple, simple screw cap.
1: Well, they definitely stand out. Which is another thing about like rosé being that like rebellious wine is like, yeah. you don't really see those style bottles anywhere else. That's common. You mm-hmm. know, those anomalies everywhere you go, but
0: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then of course, you know, we are talking about Pinot Noir rosés here, but you're seeing, you're seeing some blends out here as well. If you go up to like Washington state, even people are making rosés up there. Like we talked about Charles Beeler. There's Charles and Charles rosé. I know there's, that's a really popular one here mm-hmm. in the U.S. Um, But that's the cool thing about rosés. There's no rules. There's no rhyme or reason. I've had rosés that are even blended here in the United States.
1: You're absolutely right, Maddie. Like blending of whites and reds together, which is cool. Um, I've seen, you know, Primitivo rosé from Amador County. I've seen Nebbiolo-based blended rosés from Amador County. And one of my favorite rosés that I've had is actually a rosé based off of Sangiovese from Dry Creek Valley.
0: I remember you trying that one.
1: I should have left you some. I'm I know. Sorry.
0: <laughs> next time, next I'm time. I'm bad at doing that. All good. So <laughs> yeah, and Ethan, these wines because of the great versatility. Again, like we talked about, there's a huge span. There's a huge window with what rose actually is. You can have so much fun with food pairings. I mean, the whole spectrum. Whether you're just again sit out on the porch, just enjoying the nice sunny days, or you can really get creative in the kitchen. Um, my personal favorite is in the summertime you get, you know, like some arugula, some fresh strawberries, goat cheese, maybe Mm -hmm. some caramelized walnuts or whatnot, um, a little vinaigrette. It's delicious. It's light. It's still refreshing. I mean, you can't go wrong.
1: I like wood plank salmon with it too. Cedar plank.
0: I've tried that a few times and I feel like I'm about to burn the house down. So
1: I don't know what I'm doing
0: with the cedar plank, but (laughs) I need to work on that. But um, guys, I I know that's a lot about Mm rosé. Hopefully you learned a thing or two. I know Ethan is really excited to talk about his nightcap, and so I want to hear it.
1: So this is a wine I had uh, actually two evenings ago, and it was a indigenous variety to Hungary, and it's called Kadarka, Ooh. which is sort of rare. Uh, but it was fantastic you know it's has a little bit more color than a pinot noir but i would definitely compare it to pinot noir in terms of its character it's a lighter bodied it's a little bit thinner has this beautiful like red fruit like dried spice cherry kind of character to it but it has this beautiful like herbs de provence and like this nice like pomegranate balsamic character It was unique, and it was only about 11.4, 11.5% alcohol, so lighter body. It was just inviting. It was easy. It was just nothing too complex. It was just enjoyable.
0: Did it have like a funky old world kind of character to it? It had a
1: funky dustiness to it, but not like a corked character to it, not like the Brett kind of character Mm -hmm. to it, but it was definitely old world, but just simple. I know this is probably the first or second time I've actually seen it at some of our local wine shops out here big fan folks if you can find a Kadarka and you're big fans of pinots or grenaches go out and give it a try you also get the show off they're having some fancy wine that <laughs> no one's ever heard of before outside your friend group so
0: absolutely i'm gonna have to yeah. that's cool well folks thank you so much for joining us here today we hope you guys enjoy the rose podcast and also let us know if you savor a bottle or try some kadarka see you next time